Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. This radio program is brought to you by the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. With me today is J. Chester Johnson, who has lived multiple lives. He's a critically acclaimed poet, essayist, and translator of over four decades. He's also been very active in the civil rights movement, served in President Jimmy Carter's Treasury Department, has a distinguished career in public finance, and played a major role in the retranslation of the Psalms contained in the Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer. And this latest work is perhaps one of his most significant nonfiction works, Auden, the Psalms, and Me. Mr. Johnson, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, I, I know that I have some groundwork thanks to my Methodist upbringing, but uh, maybe we should uh, have people understand a little bit. Um, let's start with uh, liturgical religions like the Episcopal and the Anglican Church. How does the Book of Common Prayer fit into their uh, uh, weekly services? Well, it's a um, it's it's fundamental to their services, as you know. The Episcopal Church, or you may know, the Episcopal Church is the American branch of the Anglican Church, and the Anglican Church was created in the uh, 16th century as part of the um, when when the Church of England uh, broke away from the Catholic Church, or Church of England was created as the successor to the uh, Catholic Church. Um, and it was uh, the Book of Common Prayer was compiled in 1549. Um, it consisted of a lot of um, liturgy of uh, well of, of the communion, the Eucharist, um, prayers, um, and and also a body of, of psalms. Um, psalms haven't been been taken from. Uh, 1540 Great Bible of Miles Coverdale, and that constituted the Book of Common Prayer, and it pretty well stayed that way until 1662, when there was a there were some modest changes, and then that 60, 1662 version carried its way all the way, largely intact, into the uh, 20th century, and then in the um, 19, late 1960s and all through the 1970s, the Episcopal Church, as um, the American branch of the Anglican Church, decided that it needed a full revision, which it, uh, the Book of Common Prayer needed a full revision, and and um, and they proceeded to make changes throughout the book, and that included a 12-year um, project that. Um, resulted in a complete retranslation of the um, of of the Psalms, and um, I was um, I worked on on the uh, this project for eight years, from 1971 until the book until the Psalms were completed and included in the new and in the current Book of Common Prayer, and then a very famous uh, poet had um, had served. From 1968 until 1971, W. H. Auden, and um, coincidentally, he was British, but spent most of his life, his professional life, here in the United States. But decided in 71 to um, return to England and 
and therefore I I replaced him on the committee. Mm-hmm. Now you you mentioned that he's a poet and and you are too, and poetry plays a, a big part in the translation of the Psalms, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I mean, the the the, the Psalms were were poems. Um, they were Hebrew poems. Um, Structured a little differently than the English, of course, um, but they were they were short poem. Well, they were they were reasonably short poems, except for one Psalm one nineteen, which goes on forever and ever. But um, the um, but they at the time they were written, they had only a small number of beats per line, like two to three beats. That that was the difference with Hebrew. But then when we translated them into English. Because of the English ear and the American ear expecting longer lines, and um, we we you know that it, we reflected that in in the poems, the retranslated poems. And the other other reason we wanted we needed to lengthen them out a little bit is that these uh, these psalms for the Episcopal Church are used for recitation or responsive readings in churches. Uh, and um and and also for the chanting in uh the choirs chanting in in either um anglican chant or in uh, plain song so um they needed to be musical in that way and uh, and and could accommodate both recitation of the entire congregation as well as uh, singability. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many strands I can pull through here, but let, let, you mentioned that the, they were Hebrew originally, but a lot of the uh, translations come from Latin and Greek versions as well, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. When the, um, when the sort of the first diaspora or the spreading of the Hebrews or Jews outside of Jerusalem and Judea, they spread through the middle, you know, portions of the, the Middle East. And at that time, the Greeks dominated that part of the world. And so there was a decision to um, translate all the Psalms into um, Septuagint, which is, uh, it means 70 scholars. And that was the first version. Then, as the Greeks were replaced by the Romans, then these psalms became part of of Old Latin. Um, but there were so many versions of it that it just created all kinds of problems in terms of of how one would use use these uh, these psalms. And so, in the fourth century, a pope by the name of Damasus. Um, ask Jerome, who eventually became Saint Jerome, um, to bring order to this um, process, and so uh, Saint Jerome um, wrote the Vulgate Bible, which is a sort of the the more modern Latin, um, and the Psalms were part of that, and the person who then in turn put, tra- translated. The Psalms that became part of the Great Bible of 1540, and in turn became part of our Book of Common Prayer, named Miles Coverdale. He was particularly proficient in Latin, and he relied very heavily on the Vulgate. But he also knew Greek and he knew German, and he used the Lutheran Bible to some extent to do his own do his translation. But he 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 didn't know much of Hebrew, so what he was doing 
when he put it into the, the Great Bible of 1540, is he just relied on translations mostly, and a little bit on original, but mostly on translations. And he made he made a number of mistakes, and that was another reason for the retranslation of the Psalms, was um, not just the process of updating it, but also there were a lot of mistakes that he had made um, in the 1540 Bible, um, and so we we attempted to correct those mistakes in um, in our retranslation. Correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but isn't that uh, translation the basis for the King James version that's popularized now? Is is, is it? That's exactly right, Doctor mm-hmm. Kirk. That's exactly right. It was it was um, by. The King James Version came out in 1611, and the Great Bible, as I said, had been put in effect in 1540. And the one thing that uh, so many of the English uh, people enjoyed were the Psalms, and they because it was not that it was you know it was part of their not only the Great Bible, but it was also those Psalms were being used in their their worship in the Anglican Church. So the um, the translators or the those who compiled the King James Version used Coverdale's uh, Psalms as the, the source, the foundation, um, and made only slight adjustments in the um, in in his Psalms to to then go into the uh, and they went into the um, in largely uh, certain uh, largely those psalms that were in the 1540 Great Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the liturgy. Um, I, I if for 40 years in the Methodist Church, every Sunday recited the Nicene Creed, and we had our our service of Holy Communion, our version of the Eucharist. And there are words I can still recite verbatim because of all those years of saying it that way. Sure. Um, right. uh, part of the, the challenge that W.H. Alden faced with this committee that was rewriting was that he wanted to keep it more traditional. In fact, he even advocated for uh, going back to Latin, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he, he was. Uh, that. I'm laughing, but I mean, he, he was deadly serious about his views, but um, very... Um, you're, you're right, I, but you know there, there's there's a certain common. You're mentioning Methodist Church. There's this commonality that uh, existed between the Methodist Church and and the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. here in the United States. They almost merged back in 1790, and so there's a certain common liturgy that's um, that's, that's part of it. But anyway, um, yeah, there. Auden's view about the. Um, the return to Latin came, I think, largely from his. He both of his grandfathers were Anglican clerics, and so his, you know, he he grew up with this high church view of what liturgy was, and the the Reformations. I mean, for example, I'm sure Wesley would have. Very much opposed the uh, the idea of Latin because when there was this the um, translations uh, moved from being in Latin into the vernacular, whether it was German or um, or English uh, during the time of the Reformation, 
the reason that was done that way is to sort of break down what was seen as a barrier between God and the person in the pew. So the person in the pew should understand what is going on rather than most of the people didn't know what Latin, didn't know Latin. But uh, Auden's view was, you know, somewhat of a, I don't mean it, but it's certainly intellectually elite view of, well, let's return to Latin and because, but his purpose of doing that was a little different. Um, but it was, it would have been a, you know, it would have, I think it would have set back liturgy a few hundred years if we hadn't decided to do that. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, and I, I wonder um, how many people who grew up with the Book of Prayer that that they knew for 400 years are receptive to the one that was published in 79. Think, thinking about the Anglican versus the Episcopal Church, there might have been a, a significant divide across the ocean. Yeah, there there was. Uh, but it's an interesting, it's a bit of an interesting story, because we, the Episcopal Church, um, decided it needed to make these revisions, largely, um, particularly regarding the Psalms, because there were so many mistakes in it, and... Um, and the language was so obsolete. So we, um, you know, we went through the process of, of revising over a 12-year period, um, doing this retranslation. Um, we had, you know, a number of people adopted our version of the of the Psalms, and one was the uh, we became the approved version of the ch- for the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Um, but then eventually they decided that it was time for them to come up with their own because, you know, they, we do we we do have a common we're separated by a common language. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yes. So uh, they felt that there was a need, and there if you read, and we're still we're still an approved version, but we were the adopted preferred version before they produced their own. And they produced their own in um, in in 2000, and um, they've been using that. Uh, but they but I can tell you for certain that they that they're um, they continue to use our version even today. Uh, I was in London a couple of years ago, and I was at a service, and I uh, I noticed that um, Psalm our Psalm 68 was in the uh, church bulletin. And so afterwards, I went up to the uh, priest. I didn't realize so much of the background. Well, um, maybe it was three years ago. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, the priest said, oh, we use the uh, the Episcopal version of the Psalms all the time. We're authorized to do it. And for a number of years, it was the approved version. So I got in touch with a person who had been the chairman of, that, uh, of the Psalter retranslation for... Church of England, and, and he and I had had a very uh, had a had a um, long discussion about um, about this over uh, by email, and in fact, I included some of his comments in my um, in my book mm-hmm. uh, in terms of why they felt so comfortable using the Episcopal version of the Psalms. I'm not sure that everyone is is clear about how the. Uh, Anglican Church got started with the first Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, Henry VIII uh, uh, decided he needed that to happen so that he could divorce one wife to marry another. Right. Um, um, well, what happened is that you know Henry Henry VIII was just uh, he had 
he was married to Catherine of Aragon, and um, she was not producing an heir. And um, uh, he had asked um, permission to marry Catherine of Aragon because she had been previously married, and apparently she he got uh, approval to do that. He married her, and then he wanted to get rid of her and have um, and and Marianne Boleyn, whom he thought would be fertile for uh, for for a male heir, um, and uh, um, uh, as a result, um, the Catholic Church refused over time. Never gave him the approval to divorce Catherine of Aragon, and so he he decided to set up his own church mm-hmm. and to break away from the Catholic Church, and that's how the Church of England um, came, into, uh, came into being. Um, and the person who had worked on his divorce on his behalf on the, uh, on the continent... Um, Thomas Cranmer, who was very much of a theologian and and um, a biblical sto- scholar, became his Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was he was actually the one who put the book of Con- compiled the Book of Common Prayer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so and that that was the book he put together in 1549, including the, the Psalms of Miles Coverdale. Now, e- even though uh, that's sort of the seminal part of the of the Anglican Church, Thomas Cranmer didn't fare very well because subsequent uh, 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 royalty uh, was, was more Catholic than Anglican. Uh, Mary I, of course, uh, being an important figure, uh, and Cranmer didn't fare well. No, he didn't. No, he certainly didn't. Um, he was um, Mary the first came came in. She was Catholic. She was she uh, she followed Edward the sixth. Edward the sixth was a, a physically very weak and and, and a sickly um, uh, person and didn't live very long. But and so he was. It was during the, his reign, actually, after Henry the eighth, that. Um, um, the Reformation really bloomed in England, and that's when the Church of England um, was was truly established. And it was during that time that, during Edward the Sixth, that the Book of Common Prayer was put together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then, following um, Edward's death, then um, Mary the First. Uh, Bloody Mary, they call her, mm-hmm. um, came into place. They call her Bloody Mary because she had so many of the um, uh, Reformationists killed, and um, she she had um, Thomas Cranmer, who had been the Archbishop of Canterbury, burned at the stake in in Oxford, um, uh, and um, so. But then she was. You know, she was followed by um, Elizabeth I, who reigned for a long time, and her sympathies were obviously toward the uh, toward the um, uh, Church of England, and um, and her adoption of the book that uh, Cranmer had put together, and um, including the the Psalms of uh, of Miles Coverdale. 
so that's sort of the the line of succession but um but during the in fact miles coverdale who did the psalms um would have um would have been burned at the stake no doubt except the king of denmark uh, came to his defense and and um rescued him from england and um, but otherwise miles would have been would also have been killed i want to ask a, a, a couple of questions about the eucharist um and especially Alden's interpretation, because, you know, in all the years that, that I've practiced Holy Communion, we talk about uh, transubstantiation versus consubstantiation, but the, the con- consumption of the elements uh, of, of wine and bread, or representing the blood and body mm-hmm. of Christ, uh, is for the remission of sins. But Alden had it uh, connected to the dead and the unborn somehow, and I didn't understand that. Well, um Auden uh, relied on Charles Williams. Charles Williams was a theologian and writer a little older than W.H. Auden, and, um, uh, and, and he had this issue about time and eternity, that there was always a problem with time and eternity. And and Auden had written a lot about this. I mean, in his poetry, he wrote the Christmas Oratorio, which is part of For the Time Being, to deal with the issue of of time and eternity. And in that, that we, um, as Christians, as we of people of spirituality, um, and not not just limited to to Christianity, also uh, Judeo Judeo Christian um, had the issue of time versus eternity, and his idea was that if you somehow can squeeze time and eternity together and take actions where um, t- uh, where you reduce the dis- difference between the two. Then you have you are um, creating a more holy environment, and his idea was, and that had a lot to do with uh, his choice of Latin for the Book of Common Prayer. That because Latin was a dead language, um, then it is more meaningful from a holy perspective, and in tying time and eternity together, um, you don't use a current language, use a dead language. And in turn, he said, the Eucharist was um, linking the dead and the unborn, Um, and that in itself, that there was this holy element of the Eucharist of of bringing those two together. There's a moment of of, of uplifting, it's a moment of eternity, and by um, by celebrating that, um, as opposed to um, you know the spiritual aspect of what the Eucharist did, which the, the Reformationists didn't buy into that. But anyway, that was that was the idea of that Auden had about bringing together the dead and the unborn, that that's more of an act of eternity 
and if you're only concerned about those who are around the um, the table uh, uh, or the altar at um, at at communion, mm-hmm. um, and part of it, the, 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 ref, the those in the Reformation really be, felt strongly that that was not the purpose of the Eucharist. That the purpose of the Eucharist it was a spiritual act that only the living could participate in. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they it was really a rejection of that whole idea that had that was partially reiterated by Charles Williams and and W. H. Auden that was in the sixteenth century. The idea was getting away because the Eucharist was uh, was partially in the Catholic Church seen as a way of moving the dead along rap- more rapidly in purgatory toward heaven. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, and but the Reformation said, no, no, forget about the dead. This is for the living. It's a it's an act of spirituality for the living, and the uh, and it's not you know this is not the the actual body and blood of Christ. It is a spiritual act. Um, it's not transubstantiation. It's um, you know it, it is a moment where the living is participating in um, in the living alone in in the sharing of the body and blood of Christ. Very good. Very good. Um, and I, I want to return to poetry for just a moment because th- this book sure. reads like a who's who of of. Uh, English literature. I mean, you mentioned C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and John Donne and William Shakespeare, and you mentioned Tolkien at one point. It's just it's just full of names that everyone would recognize from their literature classes. And I I think uh, at one point you call the 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 Psalms the the Psalter itself, the hundred and fifty of them, a congery of of individual poems, a, a, a jumble of of a, a disorderly right. collection of some sort. Right. Yes, it is. Uh, but it is just a fascinating group of poems, though. I mean, I, uh, I, uh, after, I always loved the the Psalms, and uh, when I even when I was very young. Um, but it was uh, this eight years of spending so much time with them. I, you know, I just got. I felt. I feel like I've gotten to know the the poets. These are poets. Yes. Know, that, that put this together and. Um, and they had certain views, and um, you know, for for centuries we thought that David was um, well. Certain people thought that David was responsible for writing these psalms, and we realized that maybe he's an author of a few, but as a general matter, it was you know there were many poets who participated in this, and you can you can you you know there's a there's a certain DNA in every writer's uh, verse, and so um, uh, you know, I, I just I, I got I got I think I got to feel for the um, the, the variety of, of writers who participated in this uh, in this group, which were you know it was codified in around the five around 500 BCE after the um, after the Hebrews came back from Babylonian from the Babylonian exile and felt that they needed to redeem themselves because they they saw the Babylonian exile as a uh, as punishment for uh, 
not living up to the mitzvah or the commandments of God and prior to the um, the exodus or the exile. Mm-hmm. And they came back, and that's when the second temple was, was built, and then they codified the worship book, which included the 150... Although, it, you know, probably there was some further codification after 500, um, including probably Psalm 119, which if I'd been around that time, they wouldn't have included 119. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted 119. That, one, that one's the one that goes on and on and on, yes? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, I, 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 too, was fascinated by the Psalms uh, from a very young age and recited the 23rd Psalm a lot, and we called it the 23rd Psalm of David, of course. Um, sure. But uh, this book uh, kept me uh, fascinated. I, I looked up things to make sure I was remembering history correctly, and uh, I just I just was enamored of uh, the story and and the way you you weaved in so much wisdom, both of Alden and others, uh, for what has become the common book of prayer. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, the book is Alden, the Psalms, and Me. It's by J. Chester Johnson. It's a fascinating read. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can catch us on Good Book on on YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening.